What's up, everybody? Welcome to Building Our Power. This is Gabby. Thank you for joining us again for another reading of Blood in My Eye. KT is not here, but if we're going to keep the ball rolling. We're going to continue reading on uh, the fascism section. If you are on the PDF, we are halfway uh, on page 136. If you'd like to follow along, you can hit us up at Building Our PWR on all social media sites. And all that good stuff. All right, let's go. 6-22-71. The trends toward monopoly capital began effectively just after the close of the Civil War in America. Prior to its emergence, bourgeois democratic rule could have been said to have been the predominant political force inside American society. As monopoly capital matured, the roles of the old bourgeois democracy faded in process. As monopoly capital forced out the small dispersed factory setup, the new corporativism assumed political supremacy. Monopoly capital can in no way be interpreted as an extension of old bourgeois democracy. The forces of monopoly capital swept across the Western world in the first half of the century. But they did not exist alone. Their opposite force was also at work, i.e. international socialism. Lenin's and Fanon's national wars of liberation, guided not by the national bourgeois, but by the people, the ordinary working class people. At its core, fascism is an economic rearrangement. It is international capital's response to the challenge of international scientific socialism. It developed from nation to nation out of differing levels of traditionalist capitalism's dilapidation. The common feature of all instances of fascism is the opposition of a weak socialist revolution. When the fascist arrangement begins to emerge in any of the independent nation states, it does so by default. It is simply an arrangement of an established capitalist economy, an attempt to renew, perpetuate, and legitimize that economy's rulers by circumflexing and weighing down, diffusing a revolutionary consciousness pushing from below. Fascism must be seen as an episodical, episodically logical stage in the socio-economic development of capitalism in a state of crisis. It is the result of a revolutionary thrust that was weak and miscarried, a consciousness that was compromised. When revolution fails, it's the fault of the vanguard parties. It's clear that class struggle is an agreement is an ingredient of fascism. It follows that where fascism emerges and develops, the anti-capitalist forces were weaker than the traditionalist forces. This weakness will become even more pronounced as fascism develops. The ultimate aim of fascism is a complete destruction of all revolutionary consciousness. So George Jackson is making the claim that, you know, fascism uh, spurs as a result of the people gaining consciousness and trying to actually fight back against monopoly capital. Um, and, uh, we know, America has always been fascist, so it's, it's always been there. Um, so even before the Civil War, um, so I don't exactly agree all with that, but I will say that fascism is definitely used as a tool, as we see now. America, again, always been fascist, but they start to lean into that rhetoric because they have to when things get hard. I'm going to keep talking about it. The reason why you see this push to continue 
to push divide from everybody and look at this group and look at that group and look at this group is because people are doing bad. People are starting to wake up. And now it's time to go back to business as usual. Study history. Go back to episodes we've done about different movements and stuff around just America's history. That's usually when the oppression starts back up. Like I said, America, as far as human rights and social justice issues, it hasn't been a linear process. It hasn't been like, well, at one point, gay people didn't have rights. And now things are better. No, it's literally like, we don't give a fuck about gay people. Do whatever it is you want to do. And then, oh, economic collapse. Look at the gays. And then gay people do whatever, succeed in music, theater, business, yada, yada, yada. Oh, we have another recession. Let's go after the gays. Yeah, that's all I can just keep reiterating for everybody. Like, it's, it's America's, it's in that they back pocket. Whenever something about to go to shit, inflation, recession, bop, we got something for that ass. Fascism, let's go back into the fascism. Let's start being more overt with the fascism. And it works every single time. All right. 62371. Our purpose here is to understand the essence of this living, moving thing so that when we will understand how to move against it. This observer is convinced that fascism not only exists in the USA, but has risen out of the ruins of a once eroded and dying capitalism, Phoenix like, to its most advanced and logical arrangement. One has to understand that the fascist arrangement tolerates the existence of no valid revolutionary activity. It has programmed into its very nature a massive complex and automatic defense mechanism for all our old methods for raising the consciousness of a potentially revolutionary class of people. The essence of a USA totalitarian socio-political capitalism is is concealed behind the illusion of a mass participatory society. We must rip away the mask. Then the debate can end and we can enter a new phase of struggle based on the development of an armed revolutionary culture that will triumph. Mmm. It's interesting. I like that. The essence of a USA totalitarian socio-political capitalism is concealed by the illusion of mass participatory society. In America, how do we how do we participate? How do we participate in America? How do we show patriotism? How do we show that we love the country? One of the major things is vote. Vote, a.k.a. make sure that the rich continue having power and can continue making rules for us. Number two, that dollar. People think that America is free because they can spend money on stuff. People think America is free because they can buy things that you had to work for, that you had to slave for. You get to buy things. And if you don't have the money, you can't buy it, but at least you have the opportunity. Like, we've been so brainwashed over here. Like, it's ridiculous. You're not free because of what you are able to do. And usually when people say, you have the freedom to do whatever you want. You have the freedom to be whatever you want. It's always tied to some money. You have the, f- the freedom to be a doctor to make money. You have the freedom to start a business to make money. You have a freedom. It's all tied around that dollar. We have equated freedom, independence with capitalism and the money. And, and that's why it's so hard for some people to realize that we're not free. Because to them, we are by their own definition, by the definition we've be been given. 
But no, we are in this to- we are in a totalitarian state. If for one reason or one day you're like, I don't want to have nothing to do with money, I don't want to do that, none of this stuff, you will be punished for it. You will be punished for it by homelessness and you will be incarcerated. Because if you do not play the game, you are an enemy of the damn state. Um, okay, on May 14, 1786, the Constitutional Convention with George Washington presiding officer, the work of framing the new nation's constitution, proceeded with 55 persons and only two were not employers. Hmm. Capitalists. There have been many booms and busts in the history of capitalism in this nation and across the Western Hemisphere since its formation. The accepted method of pulling the stricken economy out of its stupor has always been to expand. It was pretty clear from the outset that the surplus value factor eventually leads to a point in the business cycle when the existing implementation of the productive factors makes it impossible for the larger factories of production, labor, to buy back the fruits of its labor. This leads to what has been erroneously termed overproduction. It is, in fact, underconsumption. The remedy has always been to expand, to search out new markets and new sources of cheaper raw materials to recharge the economy, the imperialist syndrome. Conflicts of interest develop, of course, because the various Western nations and eventually lead to competition for these markets. The result is always an ever-increasing international centralization of the various capitalist elites, worldwide cartels. International Telegraphic Unions, now International Telecommunication Union, Universal Postal Union, Transportation, Agriculture, and Scientific Syndicates. Before World War I, there were 45 or 50 such international syndicates, not counting the purely business cartels. The international quality of capitalism is not happenstance. It is clearly in the interest of the ruling class to expand and unite. I am one Marxist-Leninist-Maoist-Feminist who does not completely accept the idea that the old capitalist competitive wars for colonial markets were actually willed by the various rulers of each nation, even though such wars stimulated their local economies and made it possible to promote nationalism among the lower classes. War taken to the point of diminishing returns weakens rather than strengthens the participants, and if the rulers of these nations were anything at all, they were good businessmen. Expansion then, which often led unavoidably to war, was the traditional recourse in the solving of problems created by a vacuous, uncontrollable system which never considered any changes in its arrangement. Its its essential dynamics until it came under a very real, directly threatening challenge from below to its very existence. Fascism in its early stages is a rearrangement of capitalist implementation in response to a sharpening threatening, but weaker egalitarian socialist consciousness. In regional or national economic crises, the traditional remedies also include measures which stop just short of massive expansion on the international level. Traditional controls short of expansion and war have always existed in the form of government interventions, tariffs, public expenditure, government export subsidy, and limited controls of the capital market in import licenses, and monopolies have always used government to help direct investment. It's interesting how he's talking about, like, the methods different businesses uh, use to increase profits. Um, one of them being expansion. Now, this can be expansion. I feel like it's both. Expansion to international markets. 
in expansion in, like he said, finding cheap raw materials to produce even more goods than what you already were for the same cost. But the thing about that is, and I think that's kind of what's happening now is, it gets to a point where they said the inflation, the inflation, the inflation, aka we have these goods at certain prices. And uh, at a certain point, people have already bought them. We can't continue to keep making this stuff because it's just sitting in the storage. So, one of the remedies in the 70s, they may, it may not have been that extreme yet, but one of the remedies that we're seeing in 2023 is. They make this stuff so that it lasts like two years. Like you can barely hold on to nothing because it breaks. Like two, two years, like nothing lasts. Like y'all remember when we used to have VCRs? Like I got a VCR from when I was a child. Like late 90s, early 2000s. And that thing still works. How long is your, what iPhone y'all get? How long has your iPhone lasted? Has it lasted over a decade? Has it lasted, like, stuff is not meant to last because they want to encourage the continuing purchase of stuff. And it's just like, to me, it doesn't make no sense. And it's not supposed to make sense. That's why it's so much, you know, like brainwashing and just so much PR and shit that's just into capitalism and overconsumption and buying and shopping and this and that because in a normal natural world there's no need and I'm talking to myself there's no need for me to have Jordan ones in every single color there's no need there's no need for me to have all these different colognes there's really no need have I worn out the the one pair of shoes that I have I have not they making them cheaper, though, so that it's quicker to wear out. But there's no reason. But because capitalism is all about expanding, all about increasing profits every year, every year, every year, every year, they have to convince us that we have to continue to buy. Because at a certain point, you've marketed to every corner of the earth. And then if people aren't making enough to afford your products, you're having to tap back into markets two and three times in order to get the profits that you that you want to that you want to get. So, it's it's interesting um because obviously this isn't sustainable, especially since they don't want to pay nobody nothing, like the wages are continuing to be stagnant. I think we're finally getting to the point where where stuff is going to come to a head. And um I don't know. I don't know. What what do y'all think would be the ending outcome? I mean, they're, they're trying to distract us enough with all this, this and that, the fighting and stuff like that. But economically, I don't know how they're going to recover if they, they're not even like stimuluses and stuff. That's all off the table. And I don't see it ever coming back. It'll be interesting to see um, because eventually, I mean... I mean, if a civil war gets started, you're losing the big population. You're using a population of workers and consumers. So I don't know if they want it to get that far. But I'm not sure. This is kind of hard to, 
I might need to do a little bit more historical readings. If, for people who have done this, if this has been seen in America before, like, what do y'all think? What was the outcome back then, and what do you think the outcome will be now? But, uh, yeah, it's... I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then he was talking about, of course, how, you know, all this stuff... It it just leads to war. It just that's all this stuff leads to, and that's that's what majority of why we was in war like all this time. It's been over, so these corporations could expand. Like like think about that. Think about people who claim to be so pro troops and love America, sucking America's dick. Um, your family member died. Your family member is permanently disabled. Your family member permanently has PTSD. Your family member perm- is permanently on the street suffering because a corporation wanted to get cheaper raw materials so they could sell you a $2 shirt. Your family member, you will never see them again because a corporation wants to expand so that they can get a little bit cheaper gas, a little bit, a little bit cheaper oil, so that they can go and sell you some crappy product that won't even last you five years. It's sick. And something that's interesting. Huh, let's think about this. I'm going on a rant. Let's think about this. After George Bush and Iraq war, everybody was up in arms, right? They didn't tap into, I mean, they kind of did. George Bush tapped into fascism while he was um, in office, you know, attacking the gays and attacking bitch being racist and stuff like that. But the answer to all of that was, Obama. Obama was supposed to be like this whole other thing. Like, he doesn't want to divide. He wants to unite. But they never done that again. I wonder what it was. It, it just don't work. I mean, Obama obviously was a war criminal. He was a fascist as well. But as far as the outward public persona, it wasn't as effective. It was cool that dude was smooth and suave. He could talk and stuff like that. But I don't know if they ever going to do that again. I don't think it was effective enough. I don't know, guys. I'm going on a rant. What do y'all think about this? Um, Very, very interesting stuff. Um, Let's see. We'll do a little bit more reading. We'll do a little bit more. Um, This section is called Classes at War. Mobilization and contra-mobilization. Enough time has passed now since the emergence of fascism, the extreme crisis that precipitated it, and the hostilities that caused its early development to view it with less of the colorizing of the coloring that sensationalism and war propaganda necessarily create. We should now be able, after time has somewhat dulled the traumatic exchanges of debate and struggle, to analyze fascism objectively its antecedents, its primary characteristics, and its goal. In denying its ideological importance, I am not suggesting that all of its advocates of the especially early period were opportunist or deranged individuals reacting to a personal threat to their own situation within society. A great many of the early fascist intellectuals were responding to a very real social situation. As intelligentsia, keepers of the particular nation's systems of values, art, firm, art forms, and political thought, they felt it was their responsibility to attempt to resolve a growing social problem. 
My insistence upon the non-importance of ideology indeed rests squarely upon this point, that most of the fascist intellectuals were reacting to the uprootedness and social disintegration of the particular moment. And with each change in the face of this state of affairs, they were in large part forced to repudiate most of their former ideology. Weight is given to this observation by the fact that the early fascism included an amalgam of expressionist, anarcho-syndicalist, futurist, Hegelian idealist, theoretical syndicalist, nationalist, and in the case of Spanish, Alange, intellectual anarchists. The whole theme of the early face of fascism was not merely anti-communist, but fundamentally a general indictment of decadence, bourgeois decadence. Fascism also absorbed some socialists. In 1940, the Fasci di Azoni-Revolusia formed itself out of a group of supernatural patriots favoring Italian intervention in the war against the Central Powers. Benito Mussolini, a leader of the extreme syndicalist faction of the Socialist Party, supported them vehemently in his newspaper Il Popolo d'Italia. And of course, this resulted in the expulsion, in his expulsion from the party. In March 1919, after the deep disillusionment and unrest caused by the Italian participation in the war, Mussolini formed the first real fascio. The intellectuals that supported him do not do so out of a sense of the usual role of the intellectual in society, i.e. to educate, to set the values of that society. In a time of extreme social disintegration and economic crisis, men like Benedetto Croce and Arturo Toscanini and others like Giovanni Gentile and Gabriele D'Annunzio, one of Italy's greatest poets, supported Mussolini almost out of desperation at what they felt to be a destructive national breakdown. All four were elitists and may have also felt that their status as intellectuals was also threatened. Recall, the Russian Revolution had shocked the world to its foundations about this time. The general disregard of the Socialist Party for any art form or scientific activity that did not serve the state and its tendency to factionalize and procrastinate alienated many of the nation's top intellectuals. But the final reason why the importance of ideology and fascism must be denied is the fact that it exists in more than one form. In fact, historically, it has proved to have three different faces. One, quote, out of power, that tends almost to be revolutionary and subversive, anti-capitalist and anti-socialist. One, quote, in power but secure. This is the sensational aspect of fascism we see on screen and read of impotent novels. When the ruling class, through its instrumental regime, is able to suppress the vanguard party of the people's and workers' movements. The third phase of fascism exists when it is, quote, in power and securely so. During this phase, some dissent may even be allowed. In Italy, Shalusa, the poet, wrote and published more bitter and biting satires attacking the political regime that can be found in any of the so-called liberal democratic states. In April 1925, three years after the fascist march on Rome, Benedetto Croce was able to publish a clearly anti-fascist manifesto. The finished product, the actual 
fascist arrangement is diametrically opposed to its original ideology. The regime turns openly traditionalists and idiots like Mussolini receive the favor and compliments of other idiots like President Roosevelt, Bernard Shaw, DuPont, Kennedy, and H.G. Wells. This stems from an inevitable conflict between the notion of a new spiritualistic man and the theory of the ethical state. The ideals of obedience and creativity, authority and freedom are so contradictory of each other, so mutually exclusive, that the ideology of fascism could never be taken seriously. The pseudo-intellectual origins of fascism can be traced all the way back to ancient Greece. The German National Socialist apologist Alfred Balmer and expressionist Gottfried Benn both recognized Hegel as did some of the Italian intellectuals and Eastern European fascists. The Western Europeans, however, favored the primitive, withdrawn ideas of Nietzsche, or a confused combination of Nietzsche and Hegel, with a bit of Plato's philosopher's king added for window dressing. Actually, there have been as many different fascist ideals and arrangements as there have been fascist societies. Which brings us to the relevant point of inquiry. The importance or form of a particular political regime can never be understood simply as its standalone. Its social and economic past must be investigated and clearly defined before the distinctive being of the political realm takes shape. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that Germany and Italy reached nation-state status. Their heavy industrial sectors were rapidly expanding and coming into conflict with the traditionalist economic sectors. Though, we were, though there were some clashes of interest within the extended family of the ruling classes at the point of their emergence into Western bourgeois culture, the section controlling the largest share of the GNP in all cases finally succeeded in gaining an even greater hold over the direction of the economy with class interests generally working a compromise. The final result always involves a higher degree of centralization of power and control. I term this contra-positive mobilization. It occurs when the capitalist industrial sector of a particular society succeeds in altering the pre-existing equilibrium in its favor. The period in question was characterized by the movement of masses from traditional agricultural sector, sector into the sweatshops, large and medium, of the societies. A policy was designed by this capitalist class to limit the range of choices of the newly mobilized masses. But the, quote, specter of communism was, quote, haunting Europe. The working masses began to organize and exert increasing influence in the realm of politics. This we will term positive mobilization. So a three-sided political struggle opened the 20th century. Actually, it was a two-sided struggle, the proletariat against the ruling class. A multitude of conflicts existed within the ruling class, particularly between the older traditionalist sectors and the manufacturing class. Within these groups, two factions there were a number of separate interest groups. The corporative ideals had its root in this conflict. Elitist conservative economics like Pareto theorized about such concepts as governing elites and general equilibrium. The object, of course, was to diffuse the positive mobilization of the working class. The system itself was ostensibly designed to balance the interests of all economic classes and substructural groups. 
However, in fact, its principal purpose was to check the growth of the Vanguard Party's influence on the working class. In its beginning, especially in Italy, it was too vague and difficult to control. General equilibrium was never reached and class struggle went on abated, unabated. Class consciousness sharpened with the old bourgeois democratic states torn from within and in conflict with each other, rushed toward their own ruin. There is another form of mass mobilization that has strong socioeconomic significance. It lies between positive and contrapositive mobilization. It involves the men who were uprooted and served in nation-state wars. Those who were recruited from the agricultural sector generally gravitated to the cities after their release, further dislocating the economy in favor of the modern sector. The traditional agricultural sector was forced to mechanize, modernize, and pull marginal land out of production. In some areas, agriculture collapsed altogether. The result was a need to import foodstuff and other agricultural products. This may or may not have damaged the overall economy, but in any case, it represented another function turned over to the modern sector. Okay, we're going to stop there. There is the bottom of page 146. So, this is very good. He's kind of going through, you know, the development of fascism and what type of what type of ideologies and stuff kind of helped develop to what it is today um and even back then of course it was a response to the times it was a response to unrest it was a response is a response to the, the the ruling class becoming uneasy with the way that we the proletariat were coming together and um so this would be good. This is good to for us to kind of start, you know, reading this stuff and we can kind of, you know, start thinking dialectically and, you know, start thinking about our own current situation and the parallels with that. Um but yeah, as far as fascism like you see like what is the 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 root of it? What is the purpose of it? This is not something that you can debate out. This this is this is something evil, and this is something that can only be removed with force. I mean, you can try to rationalize with some people, but the only way it's gonna work, the only way we're gonna get rid of fascism, is by force. So, um, yeah. So we're gonna stop there. Um, you can hit us up at Bingar. PWR, if you have any comments, anything you'd like to add, but definitely hit us up if y'all have any more, you know, comments, theories, um, any of that stuff, or just you want to say hey. Um, but yeah, this has been Gabby, and this has been Building Our Power. <laughs>